Let's pray as we come to the scripture. Father in heaven, for me, for us, I pray that you would be gracious now as we open the scripture. Please, please, I pray, that I or none of us thinks that this Bible is, is just another book, just literature, just the musings of men about God. It isn't that at all. We know it to be alive. We know it to be the very word of God. We know it to be a means of your transforming and redeeming grace to us. And so, Father, I pray in these moments that you would work in such a way, by your spirit, through your word, that it would be life to us. Please, I pray, unburden us from the difficulties, the burdens of the world. Give us strength. Give us confidence to live, knowing that, Jesus, you live, and because you live, all will be well. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to the Old Testament minor prophet, as he's known, uh, Daniel. The book of Daniel, please, in the Old Testament. It's right after Ezekiel, which I know helps you a lot. Daniel, please. And chapter 1. I want to read this entire chapter, all 21 verses. So listen, because this is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Uh, They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my, for, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the use or of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Well, then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had all had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were, all, that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, as we take up uh, this Old Testament prophetic book throughout this semester, here's the question, right? Here's the question. What is the message of Daniel to us? That's the question. What's the message of Daniel to us? Now, in answering that question, there are two perspectives that can be taken each of which is commendable in its own way, each of which is helpful. The first is this. The first is the message of Daniel is to teach us how we are to live in the world in which we live. I say that because Daniel found himself to be in exile. He was a Hebrew from Jerusalem, Judah, and he found himself in Babylon, so he was in exile. He, he lived in a, in a place where God, the God of Israel, was not acknowledged as God. Right? And he lived in a place where, where there were forces that were trying to get him to compromise, to assimilate into the Babylonian life, into Babylonian culture, to lose all his Judean roots. I mean, that's what simply was the plan of Nebuchadnezzar in, in educating him and changing their names and having him eat the king's food and all of that. The, the purpose of that was these young men who were blue chippers in, 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 in Jerusalem. They were the cream of the crop. They were the smartest and the brightest and the best, if you will. And so Nebuchadnezzar took them and he wanted to train them in the things of Babylon to change them in such a way to convert them, if you will, to be Babylonians. And so they could even help lead in the midst of, 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 of that particular country. And so we say, well, that makes sense to us. We understand ourselves in that same way to be exiles. I mean, remember when we read through First Peter over the spring and a bit last summer that he called the church exiles. He said, that's true for you. You're in this place but you're not to be of this place in the same way that Daniel and his friends were in Babylon. But how is it they're going to be kept from becoming of Babylon? And, and so we, we see that. So we see we sort of have the same kind of, kind of life in a way that they did. There might have been more dramatic. There might have been more upfront. But, but we get it. We understand uh, the life that Daniel uh, would live. And so we, we say that this is about Daniel and about his life. And so what we need to do is to study his life. How did he live? In the midst of Babylon, what can we learn from him and his friends? I suppose if we wanted to make bracelets, they would say, what would Daniel do? 
Or if we wanted to make t-shirts that some of you probably had as children, may have given to your children from the old hymn, we need to dare to be a Daniel, right? Be like Daniel, that's what we want to be. And, 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 and certainly we can learn things from, from Daniel. I mean, his, his courage, his wisdom, you see. You can see it with Daniel and his friends. I mean, it was Daniel who's wise enough to, to figure out a plan of attack, if you will, when he was brought into this situation of, of being educated and having his name changed and, and the food that he was eating. So he, he kind of picked his spots. He seemed to know what to do and, he, and, and seemed to work for him. Certainly, we see that. We, we see the courage of, of Daniel as he threw open the, 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 the window to pray when he wasn't supposed to pray, even though he knew the lions would await him. And so he... He had courage to do that. We see the courage of his friends who, who, who were willing to go to that furnace that was so hot uh, rather than bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar had placed before them. Say, so, we, so we see that wisdom and, and courage and devotion to meditate on the word of God and to pray. We see that in their, in their lives. And that's the question, is it, isn't it? How is it that we, that we involve in the world in which we live. No doubt there were some in Daniel's day who had, would be exiled that began in 605 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar would go back a couple of other times with his armies in 587 and 586 B.C. and move as many people as were prudent back into Babylon and all of that in this, in this exile. And, and so, so the question for those who would live there is what do we do? How do we live? Well, certainly some would say we need to resist this Babylonian culture completely, not involve ourselves at all. I mean, as the psalmist said, how is it that we can sing the song of the Lord in a foreign land? We can't do that. We can't, we can't interact with it at all. We need to be completely separate in all our ways. No doubt, being the human beings that they were, and some would say, well, for our own preservation, we need to integrate as much as possible. We need to stop looking like Hebrews. We need to start looking like Babylonians and sounding like Babylonians. Because if we don't, then, then it'll be go bad for us. If we, can, if we can integrate, if we can assimilate, then no one will know that we're here you know, as foreigners. And, and it will be better for our kids. So let's get our kids involved in the best schools and the best sports teams. And, and let's get involved in these, in these businesses and the, in the works of the Babylonians. And so, so no one can really tell us from anybody else. We'll be safe for that way during the time of exile however the prophet Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles I suspect when you get a letter from Jeremiah you open it and you read it and you take it seriously not junk mail but prophet mail and so he writes this Jeremiah 29 he says these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem uh, to Babylon. So we get to whom this letter was intended. We don't know exactly, I don't at least, how it coincided with this first chapter of Daniel, but, but this was the spirit of what God wanted from his people. Verse 4 says, Thus, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, when, when, when 
God through Jeremiah is telling the people to, to, to give their children in marriage and all of that so they can have children so they can multiply so they won't decrease. He means us. He means don't give your children to the Babylonians to marry, but, but to other Hebrews so that we are staying who we are, right? In the midst of all that. But he says to them, build houses, you know, uh, plant gardens, eat the produce of the, of the gardens and, and, and marry off your children and all of that so there can be more children. Verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will find, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And he says, all right. There's a certain amount of, of, of cooperation. There's a certain amount of integration. There's a certain amount in which you'll be in this place and you'll be praying for it that, that Babylon prospers. Because if it prospers, then you prosper. And, and you should do all that you can, perhaps, to help Babylon prosper in that way so that it goes well for you. Don't be antagonistic. Don't be obnoxious in the midst of this. Then verse 8, For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie, and they're prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them declares the Lord. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, and here's the reason for all this. A day is going to come when you've increased in this foreign land, when you're ready, I'm going to send you back. I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem. So understand, that's my plan. Now, you know, when we, when we think about Daniel, we wonder, at least I do, a bit about how it is that we're to really emulate him if we are to emulate him. I mean, I mean he was Daniel. I'm not Daniel. And, and, and I wonder, how is it that he knew that uh, he could resist the food? See, that isn't necessarily where I would have started from. I think I would have started from the names. You see, when they changed the names... They really began to change, tried to anyway, the identity of these young men. Because you see, all of their names had, their Hebrew names, had in them the name of God. Daniel ends in E-L-L, Elohim, God, you see. So every time he would hear his name, same is true of Hananiah, had the expression ha in it for Jehovah or Yahweh. And they all had either an L or a H in there. Excuse me. Um, one time I saw someone, guy in seminary, sitting in the cafeteria, and he was choking. And I think people were going to let him die. I think he was just practicing his Hebrew. Uh, so it could be dangerous. So, um, But they had the name of God in their name. So every time Daniel and Hananiah and Azariah and, and Mishael heard their names, they heard God. Wouldn't that have been a wonderful thing in the midst of a foreign land to every time your name was called to think of God? But their names were all changed. And they were changed in such a way that now their Babylonian names had bits and pieces of the names of the gods of Babylon in them. So now when they were being called their names, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't think of the Hebrew God. They would think of the gods of Babylon. And, and, and that would be the reference. I mean, you imagine, I don't know how many times your name is called on a particular day. But over time, over years of being called by that name, you're being heard. You're hearing the name of these other gods to forget your real identity, names. 
are very important. And I would think Daniel would say, don't call me that. But he didn't. And I sort of think the education that they received, it was completely Babylonian. I mean, it had nothing to do with the Hebrew scriptures. No Hebrew way of thinking. It was all the literature, the culture, the wisdom, the ways of Babylon. That's what they were taught from beginning to end. In fact, they were to learn it, not in Hebrew, but in Babylonian. So the language was, everything about them, you see, was changing. I think I would have tried to put a stop to some of that. Now, why it was the food, we don't really know. But I don't think the application is that we all should be vegetarians. At least I hope not. Right? And again, we know that Jesus said, it's not what goes in a guy, that woman that defiles, it's what comes out, because there's defile in there already. And so, so, so that's the problem. It isn't, and Jesus said, the food laws had their special way. So, so we don't know if it was the food that was so defiling to Daniel, because the food laws were violated, the ancient food laws in Israel. Um, could have been perhaps, but the problem is he said he wouldn't drink the wine. Wine was never forbidden in the food laws, except if you were going to be a Nazarite, and we have no reason to think they took the other Nazarite kinds of vows. And so, so we don't know why he wouldn't drink the king's wine if it was about the food laws. And could be that the meat he was afraid wasn't kosher. Uh, you know, there, there were certain laws that spoke to the Israelites about how they were to to drain the blood from the meat and all of that. And perhaps in Babylon they weren't as careful. And so perhaps he was concerned about that. Perhaps he was afraid that the meat that they would be given had been offered to idols and he didn't want to do that. We simply, we don't know. The, the, the problem is that if you read Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, it appears as if after these three years he enjoyed the delicacies of the meats of Babylon. And so why for just this period, if there was a religious reason, it could be. That it was covenantal. That Daniel would say, for me to eat the king's food is like eating at the king's table. For me to eat at the king's table is like saying I'm in relationship with him. That we're family. And, and I don't want to say that. Whatever it was, we frankly don't really know. But that's what, it could have been the only thing Daniel could think of, of all the things that was happening to him that he could resist. But, but he went then, of course, to the chief official, and, uh, and he said, you know, uh, I don't want to be defiled by eating this food. The chief official said, hey, baby, don't talk to me about this because, because if you're not healthy uh, and the king sees you, it's my head. And so then Daniel moved down a notch and went to the steward that was placed over him most directly. And he said, I've got this plan, this test, 10 days. Uh, my friends and I will eat these vegetables and drink this water, not eat the king's food and, and wine. And, and then you can test us. And then if, if all is well, then, then we can go on like that. But if we're, if we're not, uh, if, we're, if we're depleted in any way, then, then you can make a decision about that then. Now, we have no idea, of course, what Daniel would have done if this steward would have said no. We, we don't know. But he didn't say no. He said, all right. And you know how it worked out. But, but the question is then, what are we to get from that? If we're, if we're to follow Daniel's life, what are we to get from that? Well, the general principles, yes. But does this mean that, that um, 
That if and when uh, we're confronted in our culture by something that would cause us, we think, to be defiled or, or to, to compromise, then we need to come up with a creative alternative and share it with those o- over us. And when we do, they'll accept it. And when they accept it, it'll be proven that our way is better. And at the end of the day, they'll applaud us. Has that been your experience? Or if you force an idol in your life out, you don't bow down to a particular idol of our culture, uh, does that mean that, that people will embrace you and that you'll, 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 be, you'll, you'll, be, you'll escape unscathed like those who refused to bow down to the idol and went into the fiery furnace and they didn't even smell of smoke when they got out? Is that what we're saying? Or should we teach our children that if, if you come up with these creative alternatives, then all will go well for you in the culture? Should we teach our children that if, if, if you don't bow down to the idols of our culture, then, then really uh, it'll go well with you at the end of the day? Or, or, or if you get caught doing something Christian that you ought not do and there's persecution, uh, do we teach our children, do we expect that the mouths of the lions will always be closed? What happened to Daniel? I mean, it's really hard to emulate that. I can, I can emulate praying in front of the window, but I can't really emulate the lion's mouths. In fact, we know our success rate historically hasn't been as Daniel's. That We know that when we go against the culture, we can be ostracized. We know that when we go against those who are asking us to compromise, we may lose our jobs if we don't. That's real. That really happens. We know that we can be socially and politically, relationally marginalized because of our faith and not exalted and heralded as it seems to happen in the lives of Daniel and his friends as we work through this. So, so what are we really to get from this? And that doesn't even mention the martyrs. The lion's mouths weren't always closed. Literally or figuratively. And so what are we really to get from this? If I'm going to dare to be a Daniel, I fail. Right? I fail. Now that doesn't mean we can't learn something from Daniel. There's certainly something we can learn from Daniel and his friends and we will. But there's a second perspective. And the second perspective is to ask the question, What does this tell me about God? Now that really is the question we always ask when we come to the scripture. What does this tell me about God, first and foremost? It's a book about God, it's not a book about us. Primarily, we're in it. But what does this tell me about God? What is it that I learned from him? I have a suspicion, and I can't prove this, and you'll see why in a minute, that if Daniel were here, that's the part that's difficult. If Daniel were here... And we said, way to go, Daniel. We're so impressed about what we've read here. We want to be like you. He would say, I think you missed the point. It isn't really about me. That really isn't it. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, you can learn some things. But, 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 but really, it's really about God. And we see that from the very opening uh, of this passage as we see it in, in the first couple of verses. See, what it looks like is that Nebuchadnezzar, mighty king of Babylon, comes into Jerusalem and by his might and power 
overtakes the city and takes from it uh, the best and the brightest back to Babylon and then takes these vessels out of the temple, the house of God, and puts them in the house of his God. Now, what that means is that Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I have complete control, I have complete power over these people. I've taken their best. They couldn't even protect their best. And now I've taken the vessels of their God and I've put them in my temple, meaning my God's better than your God. And so I've completely conquered you. And what it looks like is that Nebuchadnezzar did that by his wisdom, by his strength, and by his power. And at this point in time, if you ask him, he would say, of course I did. But Daniel says, you know, that's not what happened. Notice, he says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. See, Daniel would say, God did this. In fact, that little expression God gave is used three times in this chapter. And it's the operative phrase, really. It's the operative expression It's about God. Now, the reason, of course, that God did this is because he had made a covenant with his people. He said, I'll be your God. You be my people. But here are the stipulations of the covenant. I'll be faithful to you. I'll be faithful to protect you. I'll be faithful to provide for you. I'll be faithful to give you all that you need. But you need to be faithful to me. And so long as you're faithful to me, as long as we're in covenant together, you don't break covenant, then uh, you'll be blessed. But if you break covenant, I'll warn you. If you break covenant, I'll discipline you. If you break covenant, I'll discipline you further. If you continue to break covenant, what I'll do is I'll take away your land and I'll move you into exile. In fact, there's a precipitating incident that took place in the life of King Hezekiah of Judah. You can read about it in 1 Kings chapter 20 or Isaiah chapter 39. And what happened is that Hezekiah had been sick and God had healed him. And then the Babylonians sent an enclave to um, Judah to meet with King Hezekiah. And they were happy that he was better and all of that. But the purpose of their meeting was essentially to say... We want to elicit your help, your allegiance. We want you to join with us to fight our common enemy, the Assyrians. And what Hezekiah did was then take these these ones, these representatives from Babylon, and he took them into the treasury of God, and he showed them everything. And there's a sense in which what Hezekiah was saying is, you need my help? I can do it. Look how wealthy we are. And God said to Hezekiah, why are you making allegiances? We've been down this road before. You don't need them. You only need me. I'm the one who protects. I'm the one who healed you. Trust me. Don't join with them. Anybody says, since you did, after you're dead, what's going to happen is that all this, this stuff in the treasury and your people are going to be taken. And that's what happened here. God did it. 
In fact, as we read through, here's, here's what I want to remember during our time in Daniel. One commentator put it like this. The theme, really, the perspective we need to have, the theme of Daniel is this. In spite of present appearances, God is in control. And that's what's taking place here. You see, in spite of appearances, the appearance is that, that Nebuchadnezzar has come and conquered the people and exiled them and all of that. But the truth of the matter is, in spite of those appearances, God was in control of the whole situation. It was God who gave Jehoiakim in. It was God who raised up Nebuchadnezzar. No matter how powerful in the eyes of the world Nebuchadnezzar was, none of this would have happened had God not ordained it to happen. But he did it to serve his own, God's own, purposes, and ultimately to bless his people. In fact, if you ask Daniel, why is it then <clears throat> that you were able to resist the king's food? That was a great plan, good idea, great courage, fortitude to resolve in your heart to go to, to, to the chief steward and all of that. Uh, but, but, but why were you successful, Daniel? Was it your wisdom? Was it your persuasiveness? And Daniel would say, oh, no, 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 no. God did that. Notice verse 9. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs and the chief of the eunuchs. Now the chief basically said no to Daniel's request, but somehow in the works of all of this, the, the, the underling, the person under him, the steward that was assigned to Daniel and his friends, seemed to have the freedom to okay it. And, and you think about this. This chief eunuch could have reported Daniel could have kicked him out of the program how dare you resist the food of the king this great luxury to eat the food the king eats how dare you what presumption but he didn't because the lord had given him favor grace and compassion he felt bad for daniel to be in this situation so oh, i feel so bad for you eventually it worked out well for daniel daniel would say at the end of that conversation, those conversations, he gave thanks because it was God's doing. And then why is it that it, after the 10 days that they were greater in appearance than all the others? And why is it that, that when they were quizzed at the end of the three-year period, that Daniel and his friends were more impressive, 10 times more impressive than the native Babylonians who were professional enchanters and all of that? Well, surely it was because Daniel and his buddies were smart. They were the best of the bunch. But that would account for them being as good as or maybe better. But ten times better is Daniel's way of saying, this was God. You know, it's one thing for you to score better on a test than your other classmates. To score ten times better you either have to say, I cheated, I was lucky, or God did something, right? And so here's what happened. God did something in the midst of that situation. In spite of whatever it looked like, God's, God's, God was at work. Now here's the most important verse in all the book of Daniel. Verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, I know most of you haven't memorized that. I bet it's not even in the navigator memory pack. 
Uh, but that's the most important verse in this whole book. The reason is this. Who's King Cyrus? Well, King Cyrus was a Persian. And King Cyrus uh, conquered the Babylonians. I love inspired history. Conquered the Babylonians in 539 BC. Now think about this. Daniel and his buddies were exiled in 600-ish BC. So 539 BC, remember going the wrong way, uh, 539 BC, uh, uh, 60 to 70 years later, Cyrus comes on the scene. Now Cyrus had a different philosophy about what to do with the people he conquered than the Babylonians did. The Babylonians said, we'll destroy you by causing you to assimilate with us and you'll lose all of your culture and all of your roots. You'll become us. Well, Cyrus was way more superstitious than that. And Cyrus says, I don't want to tick off your God. I don't want to make your God mad. So when he conquered people, he set them up and he said, worship your God, but pray for me. Right, And so when he saw these Hebrews who over the course of their 70 years in Babylon had increased and had gotten healthy and all of that, he saw that group of Hebrews and he said, go back, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, tell your God, I'm really a nice guy. Right. So just in case. I don't want, you know, I don't want to, you know, I want to cover all my bases here, you know, have a yarmulke on and a rosary beads kind of guy. You know what I mean? He's just going to make sure with a, with a Hindu uh, he, uh, Muslim prayer mat and all of that. I mean, he, he's got all his bases covered, he thinks. And so he sends him back. But the point is that Daniel was still alive when Cyrus came on the scene. Now, the reason that's so important is that Daniel outlived. All of the kings of Babylon. And God was faithful to keep him and to keep the people in the midst of that exile. And we can concentrate on Daniel's wisdom and his courage and all of that. And there's something to that. We can concentrate on Daniel's devotion and there's something to that. But the point, the hero of this story is that God was at work in the midst of his people to preserve them and keep them, even though they were in exile. What's our hope? Well, we need to be devoted. We need to have resolve. We need to be courageous. We need to be um, faithful. We need to be prayerful. We need to meditate on the way. We need all of that. But at the end of the day, why will we survive Babylon? Because God is at work. Does it always look like he's at work? There Are there times when we feel like we're riding just that very edge? You see, the Babylonians had, had taken all the vessels out of the out of the treasury, out of the, out of the house of God. And they, they, they commandeered them and they said, now these are really ours. We'll see them coming later when they're trying to drink and get drunk drinking out of those vessels and they'll be judged. But that's another story. But you know, the world in which we live has taken all the vessels. They've taken our Bible. And they've said, this isn't the word of God. This is just literature. 
It's just the musings of human beings about God. It's interesting, but it's not authoritative. They've taken our Sabbaths and says, this isn't a day to gaze upon God. This is a day to spend on yourself. This is a day to, to exalt your own life and yourself. And we wonder why we're so exhausted. They've taken the institution of family and said, it isn't about a husband and wife, a mom and dad and the kids. We can define this however we want. They've taken our sexuality and said, this is really just about your own passion. Satisfy yourself. You're the measure of all things. Satisfy yourself. And they've missed the richness and the wonder of one man faithfully knowing a woman his whole life and a woman knowing a man her whole life. And they've taken our humanity and they've said, you haven't been created in the image of God. You're just the phenomena of natural processes. There's nothing unique about you. And so live according to your own glory, your own image, not according to the glory of God. And we think, how can we survive in a world that has taken all that is ours and twisted it? How can we live in but not become of? And our hope is God. He's at work. He's in control of all of this. The ups and downs, the goods, the bads, the tragedies, the joys. All of that. God's in the midst of that. And a day will come when we'll say, we outlast it. All of the gods of this age, all the rulers of this age, we really have. Yeah, there's a great story in First Samuel, in chapter 5. You probably know it. You should, I've preached on it twice. <laughs> but First Samuel chapter 5, I love this. I always have, this image is in my head more often than not. And that the image is this, that, that the, the Israelites... We're fighting their arch enemies, the Philistines. And because they hadn't listened to God, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of the presence of God amongst them. And they took the Ark of the Covenant, you might remember, just like Nebuchadnezzar did. They took the Ark of the Covenant and they put the Ark of the Covenant in the house of their God, whose name was Dagon. And... They did that one afternoon and the next morning they showed up and this big God idol Dagon was flat on the ground, face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And they must have thought, well, must have been a big wind through the night. So they propped him back up. The next morning they came in and they found again Dagon on his face, but this time his head was severed and his hands were severed. And the Philistines woke up and said, we need to get rid of this Ark of the Covenant. Tumors broke out among them. And it wasn't a very long period of time when God had shattered the gods of the Philistines. Now the same thing's happening in the days of Daniel. It's just going to take 70 years. Each story, each incident with Daniel and his friends is given to us so we can say, Look at God. He's destroying his enemies. And do you realize the same is happening now? 
You see, the question of, of the Israelites in captivity and exile in Babylon would have been, wait a minute, God, you've made promises to us. You, you promised Abraham that he would have land and descendants and, and, uh, and, that, and, and, and that as a nation we would be blessed and we would be blessed so that we could be a blessing to the whole world. And you promised to Moses that a, a prophet like him would come and deliver. And, and you promised to David that there would be one always on his throne ruling and reigning. And a day would come when the eternal David would come and he would rule and reign over your people and over everything forever. And, and here we are now, God. We're, 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 in, we're in exile. How's all this going to work out? We said, just... Wait a while. I'm at work. You'll run into trouble. I'll deliver. At the end of the day, you'll still be here. And I'll send you back. And that'll happen. And then there was a day that the angel came to this woman, Mary. And she said, and he said to Mary, blessed are you. Are you going to carry this child who's been promised? And he comes, you see. But, but then it seemed to turn bad. Because they killed him. And don't you know there were people wondering when Jesus was killed. Now what? I thought you promised. In fact, remember those people on the road to Emmaus after uh, uh, Jesus really had resurrected, but they didn't know it. And, and, and they're walking back and they're being sad. And, and Jesus rather incognito shows up. And he says, why are you so sad? And they said, who are you? Haven't you heard? Jesus of Nazareth was killed. Ended all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all that we thought would be true. Now, some of the women, they, they think that he's, he's, he's risen from the dead, but pfft, how would that be? In spite of presence appearances, God was in control. What did it look like? It looked like the Romans and conspired with the Jews, the Jews with the Romans that Jesus killed. That's not how the prophet Isaiah put it. He said it was the Lord's will to crush him for our iniquities. Who killed Jesus? His father. In complete control of the whole situation. So that we could be forgiven our sins. And do you know who's going to outlast all the gods of this age? Jesus. And do you know who's going to outlast all the gods of this age? Because Jesus outlasts all the gods of this age. Us. I know there's ups and downs. I know there's pains and sorrows. I know we wonder at times, is anybody really in charge of this store? And the answer is yes. How do I know that? I can think of a lot of things. But don't forget Daniel. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to them and he said, this is my body. It's given for you. Nobody takes it. Nobody takes it. I'm in complete control here. I've been in complete control. I'm going to be in complete control from now till Sunday. 
I'm giving my body. No one takes it. The same way he took the cup after giving thanks again, he gave to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? We remember that when Jesus died, he gave himself. No one took his life. He laid it down. He was in complete control. It looked grim at the moment, but in spite of those appearances, he was in complete control. What's true now? Because he lives, he rules and reigns. In spite of appearances, he's in complete control. As long as he lives, we live. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray now that you'll take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we'll know that the one this bread and juice represents is really alive. And this one this bread and juice represents is really present here, ruling and reigning in control of everything, including every circumstance including every area of our lives. Father, that's mysterious to us. We, we can't fathom that because we're not God and you are. We take that, we believe that, we trust that, and we know then, in spite of what we see with our eyes, that you are at work. And because Jesus lives, we too will live. I pray, God, that you grant me, you grant us faith to believe that in every circumstance and every situation. So please, I pray, seal to us this great benefit of this meal to know that Jesus lives. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. And all who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And all those who rest in his gracious provision. If that's true for you, I... Invite you to come. These two sections can come down this section to my left, uh, this aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. And as you come, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and remind yourself that as Jesus lives, we live. Please come.